0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's Power Hour podcast. We've got a great lineup, so let's get started. Good morning, everyone. I'm Bill Miles with the Hilton Head Island Bluffton Chamber of Commerce, and thank you for joining us today. We're delighted to have you. Fall is in the air, and I don't think there's really anything better than fall in the low country, and hopefully you're enjoying the, this past weekend and the last few days just like I am. It's been quite a week already for Hilton Head Island and for Bluffton uh, for the sixth consecutive year the readers of Condé Nast Traveler has voted Hilton Head Island as the number one island in the United States, and that uh, includes the Hawaiian Islands. So that's a uh, that's a big, big deal, and six years straight. And so what are, what are the visitors like, the readers of Condé Nast like about Hilton Head Island? Really, it's the same thing that uh, we all love about the place we love. It's uh, natural unspoiled beauty, our clean, beautiful beaches, as well as that southern hospitality. and Thank you to everyone who provides that Southern hospitality, to all those who, who visit us. Some other recognitions and shout outs that go out today, uh, along those same uh, traveler, or Condé Nast traveler, uh, traveler Awards, is the Savannah-Hilton Head International Airport. That was once again chosen as the number one airport in the United States. And then it's remarkable to see that out of the top 10 resorts in the South, uh, Hilton Head Island and Bluffton had four of those. So. The number one was the Montage Palmetto Bluff, uh, the Western Resort Hilton Head Island, and then also uh, ranked in the top 10 as the Inn & Club at Harbortown, as well as Palmetto Dunes Oceanfront. So a big hats off to each of you, to each of those businesses and to their associates and colleagues. What a great honor. And we look forward to continuing to to, uh, welcome our visitors and those future residents and and all those who we uh, really care about and like to see frequently. And so as we're fond of saying that, you know, we, uh, we, they call it America's number one island and we call it home. And that's uh, something that I love to share with others and just proud to call Hilton Head Island, Bluffton, and the entire Lowcountry region home. Election day is just uh, really around the corner, I think maybe 34, 36 days away. Uh, so stay tuned for that. We're gonna have some podcasts with our mayoral candidates, and then we'll be talking with other candidates running for office and we'll be talking to them about what you're asking for and number one on the list was workforce housing the 278 project as well as workforce availability and uh, so stay tuned for that you'll be able to hear all the thoughts from the candidates running for, for local office we're delighted to have senator davis with us today and uh, he's going to speak just a, a little bit to us about the green space referendum as well as give us the latest update on to the 278 corridor project and anything else that's on your mind today senator good morning and good to see you
1: i appreciate the um, what you said at the outset bill about um, all the recognition that our various uh, developments in southern beaufort county um, have achieved and and i think the common denominator um, in in terms of the desirability in southern beaufort county and beaufort county in general is the natural beauty is our ecosystem Um, we're unlike any other place in the country and it's in jeopardy um, and i want to be very clear about that um, if you look at what's already on the books in terms of approved lots or approved building lots or densities, if all of that comes to realization, fulfillment, if what's in theory been approved becomes reality on the ground, we will more than double the number of rooftops in Southern Beaufort County. Uh, that is simply an unsustainable um, development model. And, and seeing that and, and, and looking at what we can do about this, um, I proposed and drafted uh, the green space ordinance in uh, Columbia this past session. And, and what it would allow is Beaufort County or any county to submit to the voters for approval um, up to a penny sales tax with the revenues being used for the purpose of acquiring open space, buying up densities, preserving land. And that got signed into law by Governor McMaster in May. I then went to Beaufort County and made the argument to them that we simply couldn't let all these approved development units and lots come to fruition that if we more than double the density in Southern Buford County, it's going to ruin our natural beauty, ruin our environment, clog our roads, and, and diminish our quality of life. And, and Beaufort County Council agreed, and it agreed to put on the ballot this November, coming up in a few days, a few weeks, um, a penny sales tax for a period of two years. What that would do over a period of two years, a penny sales tax would raise $100 million. And so if this particular referendum is approved, what Buford County could do is immediately go into the bond market, um, issue a uh, hundred million dollars worth of bonds, have that hundred million dollars amortized and paid off over a two year period as that penny sales tax is collected. And then hundred million dollars could be utilized to buy up land, buy up open space, buy up densities to do the things that we have to do in order to maintain our quality of life here. Now, it would have a lot of safeguards put in place. Um, First of all, you would have a seven-member citizen oversight committee uh, to look at the purchases. You would have the involvement of the Open Land Trust, Coastal Conservation League, the Nature Conservancy, all these stakeholder groups that have done such a good job over the years in protecting our quality of life would be involved in the process. Any purchases by Beaufort County Council would then have to go through three readings before those dollars would be used to acquire open space. Um, I don't like taxes. I have never voted for a tax increase in Columbia, Um, but this is an existential threat for our area. People driving down 170 or 278 can already see it happening. You you look and see, you know, hundreds of acres being bulldozed, roads being put in, lots being staked out and houses sprouting up. Our ecosystem, our area simply can't sustain that kind of development. We We have a chance to do something about it this November. Uh, Buford County is going to be the first county in the state to try this new law while well, we can take the uh, the reins of this and really kind of got our own destiny. And so I'm going around to every civic group I can go to, Bill, and trying to convince them that I don't like taxes. I realize it's a tough economic time, but this is truly something that we can't afford to miss this opportunity we cannot miss. And so um, I agree with you. We have other issues like affordable housing. There are areas uh, that things that we can do in that regard. Um, But right now, immediately, right before us, we have an existential problem in terms of overdevelopment, densities that have already been approved. They're on the books. We can't do anything about them. Local government has already approved them. The only way to control it at this point in time is to do something like this. And I'd be happy to answer questions that, you know, your members may have. um, But I'm doing the best I can to give the Beaufort County voters an opportunity to roll this back
0: all right all right senator thank you our first question we do have some questions for you today the uh, first one's coming from jesse and jesse is asking will the county ever be able to build or sell on the green space properties
1: no um the way the statute's been drafted is very clear that that once these proceeds are used to acquire open space um, it cannot be then converted by the county to some other subsequent use it is is retired it is, it, is, it is green space in perpetuity. The statute is drafted that way. So this isn't a situation where these proceeds can be used to buy land and then at some future point in time um, repurposed or redeveloped. This is to preserve open space, to buy down densities, to maintain our quality of life. Okay,
0: question next is from Susan. And Susan is asking if this is modeled after what the island has been doing for many, many years in terms of buying up land.
1: Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's similar to the um, the program Hilton Head has in place that charges a quarter point uh, every time property changes hands, and then those monies are used by uh, the town of Hilton Head to acquire open space. Um, it's actually more restrictive, however. Um, the statute that would authorize uh, this green space penny is very, very restrictive and clear that the land can't be repurposed or used for any other reason uh, than to be open space. I, I don't know that you have similar uh, restrictions or as tight restrictions. On, on what the town can do with those revenues. So it certainly is similar in terms of intent, but I would say that the green space penny dollars are more restrictive in regard to what the land can be used for.
0: Senator, another, another question that's being asked is uh, uh, asking you to speak a little bit about what you talked about last night at the Hilton Head Island Town Council meeting, as far as the 278 corridor and bridge project goes
1: yeah you know, last night the um the town uh, voted four to three to enter into a memorandum of agreement with Buford County um in regard to uh, doing a further simulation study on um, the scope of the project, or actually from the Moss Creek traffic lights uh, to the cross Island Parkway uh, to obtain more data in regard to traffic throughput, um to to look at the project uh, to see if any more enhancements or improvements could be made. Um, that's the suspect, expected to take about six to eight months. Um, and Then re- depending upon what that data and what that study reveals, there could be modifications uh, to the preferred alternative that's been identified by the DOT. Um, the difference between what the town and the county, um, the, the MOAs that they each had passed, was in regard to the scope of work to be performed. Um, the town had passed an MOA that included the scope of work, that allowed the independent consultant to look at all other alternatives, even alternatives that had been previously rejected by the D. O. T. The feeling was that uh, the data that had been relied upon by D. O. T. earlier was inadequate, um, that there were alternatives um, that should be reconsidered. Um, The county uh, scope of work um, was more restrictive in terms of we can look at improving the preferred alternative, we can look at new data, we can try to improve the project, but we're not going to go and revisit alternatives that had previously been rejected. So that was the difference between the two versions uh, between the county and the town. Uh, The county's version was in line with what the DOT said could happen without there being any consequential delay uh, to a request for a finding of no significant impact um, from the federal government. So, um, so that's the reason for the discrepancy or the differences between two versions. Um, There is an agreement now in place um, to do this uh, independent study on a on a smaller scale. Um, DOT will then presumably go forward and, and seek to get um, an environmental assessment determination of no given impact. Um, and so that's that's the status of things right now.
0: Senator, great, thank you. We have one more question before we, we let you go. And uh, that's asking about solutions for workforce housing. Any thoughts that you have on that? And then also asking if this, if this initiative limits future, future residents the ability to have growth.
1: Well, certainly the initiative, if you buy up open space, if you use that money to acquire tracts of land, um, that would constrain future growth because that land would be taken off the books and would not be developed. Um, in regard to workforce housing, you know, really the key ingredient, um, you know, to make workforce housing economically feasible for developers are these low-income housing tax credits or life tax credits that the federal government provides. We can match those, and we do match those on the state level. I think last year we had $20 million worth of these of these tax credits available. We really need to up that amount to about $50 to $60 million annually in order for the supply in regard to workforce housing really to meet demand. So that's, that's one thing we can do at the state level is increase the number of state tax credits that are available to developers to incentivize them to devote their projects to, to affordable housing, workforce housing
0: all right senator thank you uh we appreciate you being with us we appreciate the work that you do uh, on behalf of all of us and uh we'll continue to to hear more and more updates from you as we move along appreciate you you i've never talked spoken to anyone who has traveled to more countries than he has states um so we're going to look at uh, uh kevin cassidy today and kevin is with the uh, director, there it is, the Director of the Bretton Woods and Multilateral Organizations for the International Labor Organizations for the United States. That's uh, quite a deal. And then prior to that appointment, he served as the Senior Communications and Economic Social Affairs Office for the ILO Office of the United Nations. From my Midwestern draw to Southern slang, that uh, that's a lot for me to get out. Traveled the world extensively and... Uh, Uh, we're delighted to have him with us today so he's also i want to point out also on november the 11th we'll be speaking to the world affairs council here on hilton head island and for any of you that would like more information on that and how to be a part of that kelly will have that in the chat box so kevin thank you for being here today welcome and uh
2: we're delighted to have you thank you bill Great. We've experienced problems, you know, during COVID. I think COVID showed the fragility of our uh, global economic system, and of course, our reliance upon, uh, you know, just-in-time delivery, you no know, warehousing, uh, which made sense, I think, when things were working well. Uh, but I think now we're in a very difficult spot, and there are multiple reasons why. Um, the obvious one, as we see, uh, extreme weather, extreme weather, climate change. You know, these have always caused uh, problems for supply chains. Um, and I think now when we are seeing uh, Hurricane Ian going on, uh, we see uh, other extreme weather events around the world. You know, this is actually uh, creating big problems. Uh, Rivers are running dry around the world. Trying to get goods from the factories to the ports and out to the markets have been a very difficult uh, situation. The second big issue that we're facing now is geopolitical uncertainty. I think you know, people are looking at the war in the Ukraine. Um, of course, um, you know the the uh, inability of them to export wheat to certain markets, and you know the the uh, the wheat market from Ukraine is very important to uh, to continents like Africa and other parts of uh, of Europe. So this you know this uncertainty really creates problems, and if you have uh, you know, sort of low, uh, low intensity war. Even if it escalates even further, um, you know, I think one of the things that happens during wartime is that your supply chains are often targeted. So I think we have to be keeping a watchful eye on that. Um, the you know third element that we're looking at in why supply chains are still a bit uh, sluggish uh, is that you know energy shortages, inflation. I mean, we have the finance, fuel, and food uh, concerns that are uh, that are happening right now. Energy shortages uh, in, uh, in, well, in uh, Europe in particular. Uh, You know, Germany is the largest economy. It's heavily dependent upon uh, their exports. And if they don't have the energy supplies in order to keep those factories up and going, you know, we're going to see significant uh, delays in the global supply chain. Um, We already see U.S. retailers. They're cutting their sales forecasts. Uh, U.K. car makers are really worried about their output. Uh, They're not being able to access um, the uh, chips that are necessary. You know, all of the uh, additional functions in our cars today require to have chips with firmware embedded into that. Um, uh, Again, back to geopolitical, most of our our chips today are made in Taiwan. It's the biggest supplier of chips. And, of course, uh, with the situation in China, looking at Taiwan and, of course, the the U.S. uh, president's response to that, um, you know, we we have some uh, some problems ahead that I hope that we'll be able to overcome. Uh, the last two that we're looking at is uh, I'll use the word labor unrest. Uh, I, I think it's uncertainty more accurately. Um, you know, the rising cost of living. You know, workers demanding wage increases. People reevaluating, not you know resigning, but reevaluating what work means to them. Um, in some of the jobs that we uh, that we take for granted, you know, the waiters, the people who are stocking shelves, the people who are, you know, driving buses or taxi cabs. And so um, a lot of them were kind of looking at their life and seeing, you know, Do I really want to work, you know, 40, 60, 80 hours a week and just making a living for myself working two or three jobs? And, you know, many people today uh, realize that you need a two income family uh, if it is a single parent headed household or you're an individual getting started in your world of work. um, You know, it's very hard to find those wages that are going to be able to afford the housing that you need. Many of the people in big cities uh, who are servicing those cities, you know, whether they are working for the municipality in terms of bus drivers or policemen or firemen and uh, sanitation workers, uh, others who are working in service industries, working in retail shops, working in domestic services. And so, I mean, they can't even live in the city, so they're outside. So they really can't feed back into the uh, into the economy uh, because they are moving further and further away with less reliable transportation for themselves, higher fuel costs are all impacting on that. And then, of course, you know, overall, you know, the pandemic has really, um, you know, put a lot of people out of work. Um, so we're really kind of struggling to get back to the numbers that we had before. Um, but it gives us an opportunity to sort of reevaluate how do we move forward together. So I, I could talk a bit about that, but I'll, I'll pause there in case you have another question to pepper me with, please.
0: Yes, Kevin, just a couple questions before we move forward to that. One of the questions just coming in is from Jason. Uh, You mentioned a little bit about workforce and asking is what's your take on workforce issues in the US and any possible solutions you might have in mind?
2: Right. Um, I think if I had the ultimate solutions, I'd be Secretary General of the UN, but I will try my best to give this. I think what we're looking at is that there were a number of mega drivers of change uh, before COVID-19 had hit uh, and one of those was digital transformation. And I think the US, which is really engaged in what we would characterize as an innovation economy, right? I mean, agriculture, manufacturing, uh, finance, knowledge, and innovation. We're at the high end of all of this. And digital technology and innovations are taking place around the world, but the U.S. has been a leader on most of this. The, for a fact, microchips were invented in the U.S. So I think what we're looking at is how do we retool the future workforce to have these, um, you know, future-proof skills? And this is not going to happen overnight. You know, most universities will provide you with a uh, a uh, certificate, uh, but I think today, you know, people are seeing the need to go to higher-end activities and go for master's degree or go for credentialing in areas. Uh, in the digital technology. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't jobs for people in trades. I mean, I think someone who paints a bridge, someone who builds a road, someone who swings a hammer, they can, an electrician, you can earn a very good living. And in some instances, the general contractors will make more than a professional such as myself and my jobs. Um, But it is the protection of those workers as well that the ILO looks at in terms of the fair remuneration, maybe their benefits and uh, and, of course, pensions, because uh, I don't know if the future generations will be able to ever retire. So we need to look at skilling and skills forecasting. So, I believe that it's really important for businesses and the government and academic institutions or educational institutions to get together to look at the skills that they are look that they need for the future. Now, what we see with most employers and the uh, Society for Human Resource Management was speaking about this recently, that it's not only just the technical skills uh, in particular areas and high-level skills, but it's also those cognitive skills that you get, you know, through the liberal arts education. So this is about teamwork, communication, problem-solving, innovation. I mean, these are absolutely essential for moving forward. So I do believe that we need to get the governments, the the employers, uh, even the trade unions, because trade unions credential their workers. And if anyone has had renovation on their home, you know it's better to have somebody who actually is trained on it rather than just Believing that somebody who comes into your house actually has that skill set, so credentialing is very important. Forecasting for the skills in the future are very important. Um, but let's not give up on the uh, the trades because I believe that the trades will offer a very good opportunity uh, for many people as well too. But also let's be careful about that we are now in a global competition. And as COVID had shown us that we can work, certain jobs can be worked remotely. So you're not just competing against somebody in your city, in your state, in your country, you have global competition because this teleworking has opened up a whole new phase of work where we have to also be careful because when you are you know, a sort of um, uh, an individual worker for a big company that may be contracting you from overseas, you want to make sure that you're gonna get paid for that job. So read the terms and conditions on that. Uh, as an individual contractor, sometimes uh, you may not uh, be able to see that, uh, but I do think you know, all of these together, these, uh, these simple um, sort of approaches, which are very complex once you start pulling it apart, are the way in which we're going to be able to move forward. Thank you for that. Another
0: question coming from Philip, and Philip is asking, uh, do you see us lessening our dependence on China for goods?
2: You know, I think one of the big um, issues that had come up is uh, not only just how global supply chains are very fragile, but how we've invested in one supplier. Now, that has happened through the development of vertical supply chains, so many big companies. For all the right reasons to expand markets, to uh, to sort of increase uh, their uh, their exports, you know, went to certain countries, China in particular, uh, where China actually has uh, has the entire supply chain covered. They can source the minerals or their cotton for the products. They can have it processed. They can have it manufactured into uh, into goods, and then have them on a ship and ready for you. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, um, you know when we see that, we are also worried that we become very dependent on that. So there is a move towards reshoring and nearshoring. There's a lot of discussions, for example, uh, in the White House, um, Vice President Harris had uh, developed a Uh, Root causes strategy for Central America, uh, making obviously the America's hemisphere uh, stronger and more self reliant on one another. Uh, But it's not easy just to shift overnight after 40 or 50 years of building up your uh, footprint in other countries. So to retool, to retrain, to have the investments going on. uh, it's, It's not a panacea, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, but I do think what's happening now that we do see is that employers are starting to realize that you need a multiplicity of, um, of providers for yourself, everything from the raw materials to the production manufacturing of that. Uh, we're also seeing that businesses are taking more attention and more care to have greater visibility within their supply chains. Most companies today don't see beyond the first tier or the second tier at most. Uh, But as people in this uh, business know that, you know, you could have thousands of employers uh, working on that, that that provides an opportunity for small and medium sized enterprises in the United States, uh, particularly uh, women headed businesses uh, that can actually provide inputs into those global supply chains. Uh, or supply chains just more generally for the US. So I think we can build resiliency into that. And we need that resiliency sustainability in order not to be held hostage to the geopolitical problems or the transportation problems or pathogens that go out and destroy the entire global economy.
3: Our next question is coming from Sam.
0: And uh, Sam's asking, how big of a role do you see AI playing in our future workforce?
2: You know, AI and machine learning are a really interesting um, uh, situation for us, right? I mean, technology has always been changing, right? Uh, we went from the canoe to the sail, we went from the plow to the Kanban harvesters. Technology has always been impacting our life, but previously it had been for the, you know, the hard work, the dull, the dangerous, the dirty work, um, and and now with AI and machine learning and um, IoT, Internet of of things we're starting to see that the computational, the analytical uh, and the practical things are being done uh, by machines themselves. So uh, will it be uh, important? Absolutely, I think it already is. I mean, AI is being used today. I mean, anybody who is ordering online from the big stores, AI is at play. Um, I think that there are privacy issues, that people's data can be used or misused in a multiplicity of ways. I think that uh, when people are writing algorithms, because they're written by humans, and humans, you know, we do have our, our flaws and our downsides, and we have to make sure Uh, That the jobs uh, in the future are starting to weed out, um, you know, the bias built into algorithms. For example, a job that uh, LinkedIn was talking about, a future job is an algorithm bias editor, you know, so you can take the bias out of the algorithms. Um, The other issue as well, too, is that when you have AI and machine learning, um, this not only impacts upon the workers themselves, uh, but it will work. It will actually impact on management. Um, I mean, it's not to uh, diminish the role of a CEO or a COO or a chief uh, innovation officer, um, but a lot of that uh, analysis and the gathering of the data can be done much more effectively and efficiently uh, by AI and by machine learning. So I think in the future, there may be uh, we're the, the workers on one end and the uh, the management on the other will actually be kindred spirits because we want to ensure that moving forward, that we have a human-centered approach to this recovery and building forward together. So it is a very important uh, development. It is happening whether we like it or not. Uh, it is already into our our mainstream. I just hope that we make sure that the rules that are control that are um, guiding and regulating that uh, actually remember that it is the person who is at the center of the whole equation itself.
0: Kevin, as we get ready to, to wrap things up, what closing comments would you have for us today?
2: Uh, Bill, I, I think the most important thing is to say we're in it together. You know, uh, people need jobs, so we do need investors. We do need people who have great ideas, who are willing to stake their uh, their life savings on building a business. Uh, businesses need to know that your talent is your most valuable resource and that you have to treat them well and I think having dialogue, having communication is very important. So that's on the worker and employer side. So dialogue, understanding the needs, and when workers make money, they put it right back into the economy. They're paying their mortgage, they're buying shoes, they're buying refrigerators, they're paying their mobile bill, the, te- the cable or streaming services. So, so when you raise those wages, they actually go back in and create a greater velocity of income in the economy. For the government side, I would say that you have to look at the safety nets. Uh, We've seen, you know, during COVID-19 that people are losing their jobs. They have to be provided with money lest they fall into abject poverty. They have to have access to lifelong learning uh, systems um, because paying for education is not inexpensive. Does it fall on the individual, to the company, to the government? I think we need to start developing partnerships around that. So governments need to look at the educational, the nutritional side, uh, access to uh, to healthcare, I mean, this is something which is an increasing cost, and many people are not covered by that, uh, but also assistance uh, in active labor market policies, identifying transition jobs for kids transitioning from school to work, from work to work. Uh, in the future, most people will have at least 15 jobs in eight different careers, so we need to look at those transitions, lifelong learning to upskill for that, and then, of course, in retirement. Uh, in the old days, we would rely upon our pension or social security. Now, both of those are, are under threat in many ways. The pensions don't exist, uh, 401ks are not making the grade. So we don't want to go back to the world where everybody has to work until they expire. We want to ensure that people can actually enjoy the uh, benefits of, and, the, uh, and the, uh, what they've generated their whole life for their work. So there's a lot of interlocking parts. We're in this together. Let's not see ourselves as enemies, but as allies and partners.
0: Kevin, thank you. Thank you so much. Extremely informative. And I want to remind our listeners that uh, you'll be part of the World Affairs Council uh, Distinguished pro- Speaker Program on November the 11th. So that information is in our chat box. And if you'd like more information on that, uh, Kevin will be doing a much deeper dive on, on the sub- some of the subjects we discussed today. And Kevin, I look forward to being a part of that and uh, just terrific information. And thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you, Bill. Looking forward to working with you again. Very
0: well. Okay. As we move forward, we uh, we look back a little bit to last week and know that we we're very, very fortunate in how we dodged another uh, hurricane with just a, a small brush. And our thoughts and prayers certainly go out with those in, in Florida today and, and uh, those in South Carolinians that were hit, as well as other areas. I want to give a shout out to the Hilton Head Island Rotary Club. Uh, yesterday, they left for South Florida with supplies. Uh, everything from baby formula to brooms and everything else in between. So thank you for all who donated to that. And then also uh, very much appreciative of the Rotary Club uh, making that trip with, with the supplies. And so usually in June, we're talking about hurricane predictions at the beginning of the season. And we thought it'd be interesting today to have meteorologist John Weatherby with us. He's here to give us a little insight onto uh, how the professionals decide really where the best, where the where the storm's going to go, and what the best sources of information uh, will be. And many of you might reno- remember John, uh, John Weatherby, who is also known to us, and finally is Big John Weatherby. Uh, now he's consulting with uh, different businesses throughout not only South Carolina and Georgia, but really the country. And uh, John, thank you for being with us today. Tell us what uh, give us a recap of last week and also what you see moving forward.
3: Well, I have to remind everyone immediately, we're not done. There's more of the hurricane season to come. And I always like to suggest at the same time, boy, it'd be nice if we don't have any more storms. And there's certainly nothing that's pressing our way. But I greet you with 61 degrees, a north breeze at seven on the island. Uh, Things are very comfortable, headed up to 77 this afternoon. You really can't argue with that. And that often happens after a major tropical system goes by the weather becomes just delightful because that system, in fact, holds all the low-level and mid-level moisture out of the atmosphere, and you get a dry system that kind of takes over and gives us some really lovely weather. But it was last Thursday, 2.21 in the afternoon near Georgetown, Ian made a Cat 1 landfall into South Carolina, and I'm watching him on water vapor imagery still today, continuing to spin right off the Virginia coast as an upper-level low. With lots of rain into the Northeast. If you've been up to the city at all this week or anywhere in the Northeast quarter, you've been under the remnants of Ian, and that will continue finally pushing off. It's kind of important also to say, as Bill suggested, where are we right now? And there are no threats for South Carolina today. We do have tropical depression number 12, very weak out in the middle of the Atlantic, doesn't look like it will survive, but there's a caveat there. It may, in fact, regenerate as a tropical storm after the weekend, once it gets through a very hostile environment in the next couple of days. Perhaps our bigger concern is what's labeled as 91L, invest 91L going into Central America, then possibly into the Pacific. But 91L could turn in the Southern Gulf and head northward toward our Gulf Coast. That doesn't look likely, but it's a possibility. We'll keep that in mind. The original hurricane forecasts back in May and June were for a lot more named storms that we've actually had this year. The big question sometimes is asked, what's the difference? What happened? Why didn't we get as many storms? And the reason apparently so far has been the development of the Sahara Air Layer, S-A-L, or the dust layer, as it's sometimes referred to. And that dust layer comes off the African continent, spreads across the African basin, and actually acts as a cap where storms don't get a, have a chance to get started. We get a couple of early storms in the season, and we did this year, especially right along our Gulf Coast communities. An old front kind of stalls out, and a new tropical low has a chance to form. But during the real development period that we normally expect to see a lot of activity, July and into August particularly, we got nothing. And August was just a rarity. The first time since 2012, we haven't had any named storms. We also knew that we were going to catch up a little bit, but we haven't caught up all the way. But we are now up to the 12th storm. We've had several named storms and a couple of majors now, including Ian. Ian was massive. Not only massive in terms of its strength, the wind strength, which is now officially 140 miles an hour at landfall, but also in the size or scope of the storm and the area that it covered. Our Georgia and South Carolina communities had impact with Ian's wind fields, which extended out as far as 470 miles. Yes, Hilton Head was under a tropical storm warning for a period of time. Yes, we got lucky as the storm continued to be pushed farther and farther to the east with all the heaviest weather on the east side of the storm, impacting not only the PD, but up into North Carolina and continuing to pour on Virginia and portions of the northeast. Yes, we will get another hurricane of some fashion at some time. The expression is it's not if, but when. So as planners, as organizers, as managers, as folks who are, as Kevin suggested, don't have a chance to retire yet, or perhaps just don't want to, like me, I enjoy this too much, But as we plan moving forward, don't lose your focus on the fact that we still could have some tropical interaction, some tropical storms, even perhaps a hurricane. And the easiest way to remind you of that is in 2016 with Hurricane Matthew, which came right up the Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina coasts before turning farther out into the Atlantic. The other question we get quite a bit is how do you predict these kind of storms? How do you get any better at predicting these kind of storms? And may I also offer an opportunity to say to you, you need to have more knowledge about what's happening with these storms. Sometimes folks go, oh, I know all about hurricanes. Great. Then what are you doing to be safe? What are you doing to protect your family? What are you doing to protect your business? So many imp- uh, so many parts of a hurricane story revolve around impacts. I'll be spending the weekend this weekend at St. Simon's Island with seven other operational meteorologists working simply on Ian's impacts and how we can do a better job communicating what those impacts might be, uh, helping people understand how they need to prepare, what you do need to do in case we do get another Cat 4, Cat 5 storm. Sanibel Island is gonna be exhibit A in terms of these discussions and how we get this done. Another thing that's gonna be uh, a big part of our discussion will be the cone of uncertainty. So many people don't understand that the cone simply refers to the greatest or damaging winds. It does not have any context at all to the impact of a storm. So Hilton Head got some winds. We got some trees down. We got some minor damage. We did pretty well as Ian went by. The other side of the storm was not so fortunate in terms of our South Carolinian neighbors to the north and up through North Carolina. The folks in southwest Florida saw a major hurricane coming, but yet chose to not evacuate, but to stay in place. Do you realize Tampa started evacuations on Monday before that storm actually made landfall? It's incredible that they already had the actions in place, and people didn't take a response to those actions. So those are the kind of things that we're going to be discussing. And the final question I get a lot is, are we getting any better at predicting tropical storms? And the answer is yes. We're getting much better. Our, our National Hurricane Center initial forecast on what Ian would do was very close to being right on target. Yeah, that's kind of important, but what we missed was how large the wind field would be, how large the impacts would be. But for the very first time, we had new information. You know about hurricane hunters that spend all the time flying over the storms when they're out over the water. This time we had upper air soundings being taken. Uh, over the features that were going to be directing Ian, over the area of high pressure over the Southern Plains, over the trough that was over the Ohio Valley that actually pushed Ian farther and farther to the east, over the subtropical high that was sitting out in the Atlantic, areas of the weather equation that we've never thought about before. This time, for the very first time, we had planes flying at 45, 65,000 feet up over those features, identifying their characteristics, identifying what they could or could not do and which direction they were moving. That helped us immensely know that Ian was not headed toward Savannah, was not headed toward Hilton Head, was not headed towards Charleston, but eventually made that landfall near Georgetown. Those are some of the thoughts as we wrap up Ian just a week ago, pushing by our area and changing all of our lives dramatically. And history was being rewritten in Southwest Florida, in portions of the Carolinas, that's gonna happen again, so we need to be prepared and we will continue to be vigilant to help make that happen, Bill.
0: John, you're the best, thank you for that update. Our first question is coming from Sam and Sam is asking how social, social media impacted storm preparation both positively and negatively?
3: Sam, great question. And I wish I could tell you which accounts were really bad and which accounts were really good. Let me start by saying find trusted sources. And the National Weather Service, the National Hurricane Center, weather.gov is their website, uh, and go go to the tropical storm update section. That's the best place to look. There's an army of 240 skilled tropical meteorologists who are working 24-7 to do forecasts, and they do a great job. Sam also realizes, obviously, by asking this question, that there are people on the internet that will say, Hilton Head's about to be hit by a hurricane in 27 days. Everybody's going to die. Okay, there's your clickbait for the day. You just have to pay attention to who, in fact, is a reliable source. I hope you might find my information reliable. I I love trying to help people, and I use the National Hurricane Center data all the time. I don't try to predicate my own knowledge saying I'm better than somebody else. I just try to make sure you know the impacts and what they will be and where the storm is expected to head. What impacts did social media have? Perhaps a lot, especially through South Florida, because there, are not, there was not the network, I understand, that was in place to try to get that information out to residents, especially visitors who happen to be in Naples or Fort Myers. Cape Coral happens to be a region that I'm very familiar with in terms of a lot of residents that are are temporary or part-time residents, and maybe don't have sources of information. Sam, I think that's a very, very important question. And that's probably item number two that will come up in my weekend conference at St. Simons. How do we help people understand what to see, what not to see, what to realize? And I think part of that issue or answer starts with understanding what a hurricane or can or cannot do. Um, Charlie, was a third of the size of Ian. Yet Charlie is very vivid in the memory of a lot of Floridians because of the way it went across the state. Uh, Irene was another one. Gosh, I remember Opal, which on this date in history, back in 1995, went across the northern part of South Carolina, spawned a couple of tornadoes. There are, you know, oh gosh, I just thought of Florence. L- last couple of years coming into South Carolina and North Carolina with slow moving, and heavy uh, thousand year rainfall in a lot of locations. All of these kinds of storms are being impacted now by everybody with social media. I can't grab a phone without coming out of the screen, but people are taking pictures. There are tons of pictures. No, the shark shark picture in the street is fake. Don't believe that. But there are lots of funny pictures and uh, interesting pictures. There's a cat that ended up on a bench in Fort Myers that was supposedly a stray cat that somehow survived the storms. I don't know if any of those stories are true. What I do know is true is what Bill started my section of, started my segment of this program by talking about Rotarians going down to help Floridians, people who actually need help, people who actually need to be taken care of, need to be assisted to get back on their feet. They're still without power, they're still without water, they're still without supplies, It's just an incredible disaster. Sam, social media had an impact. I'm not sure it was all good. I'm not sure it was all bad.
0: Thanks, John. Another question from Lewis, and Lewis is asking, how high was the storm surge when Ian first hit land in Florida?
3: Storm surge was 22 and a half feet. We had a negative surge in Charlotte Harbor, Negative surge, meaning the water was drawn out of the harbor and then came crashing back into the harbor as the storm made landfall. It just depends, Lewis. you probably know this, just depends on how the winds align with certain water features, how high they may or may not be. It's also very difficult to accurately measure storm surge. And by technical definition, storm surge is how much water above normally dry locations. 22 and a half feet was the last report that I saw from the Hurricane Center.
0: All right. Another question is coming from Scott. And Scott is asking about the spaghetti models. Uh, Spaghetti models are prevalent and uh, online. How reliable are they? And should we continue to follow those?
3: Sure. Uh, and, and, And you're welcome to follow them. Just understand they're not the gospel. Just understand that. Let me give you an example. The American model, what's called the GFS, um, it puts out an ensemble of model uh, summaries or solutions. And that ensemble is part of all those lines that you see going in all different directions because the input to each model solution has different parameters. Uh, We've learned over the years the different biases with the European model, with the American model, with the Canadian model. I like the Navy model a lot. I think they do a good job and have been in place for a very long time, if that's helpful to you. Spaghetti models I don't mind because they show us the possibilities, but they don't show you exactly where it's going to go. And many of the model depictions have what's called a center line, kind of a general consensus of what they think all these models together might actually look and see. I would follow the National Hurricane Center uh, uh, models and predictions. That's the one you've got to take action on. Some of those models that are 10, 15 days out are just horrendous because they don't have the information. Maybe the storm hasn't formed yet. Maybe there's two, uh, several uh, synoptic features in the environment ahead of the storm that will change directions and focus. There are a lot of things that can change. Watching the spaghetti models, okay, that's fine. Don't let yourself get nervous or worried about a model that says something's coming to Hilton Head yet. You've got to wait. Um, it, it's and what, For a short period of time there, the National Hurricane Center line up this cone of uncertainty was headed right to us. But we all knew that was going to shift farther and farther to the right. We were very, very blessed that it got even farther to the right, that it gave us very few impacts on the wraparound. But But if you watched the spaghetti models, when Ian was first starting to form uh, west of the or east of the Leeward Islands, you thought, good grief, that's headed to Texas. Well, that's where the original models said it was going to go.
0: uh, We have one more question for you. And this is coming from Greg. And Greg is asking, we hear the phrase dirty side of the storm. What does that
3: mean? Great question, and very important for planners and managers everywhere. As you look at the storm's track, the right front quadrant of that storm, in this hemisphere, that's the right side of the storm, is the dirty side of the storm. It has the strongest winds, it has the heaviest rains. Also, in this part of the world, we are often uh, having to deal with wind shear, southwest to northeast wind shear which is blowing the heaviest storms off to the upper right side. The back side of the storm is called the clean side of the storm because it has less impact, okay? As Ian went by, Hilton Head was on the clean side of the storm. You see the difference? But the dirty side of the storm is where the heaviest rain is. When Fiona went by Puerto Rico, it didn't hit, Puerto. well, it clipped Puerto Rico on the southwest corner. But when Fiona went by, The dirty side of the storm was over Puerto Rico and they got all of that incredible devastating rain along with some gusty winds. The dirty side of the storm is normally in this hemisphere considered the right side of the storm, especially the right front quadrant and that's where you're most likely to get isolated tornadic activity as well with any landfalling storms. Good question.
0: All right, John, uh, as we get ready to wrap things up, what thoughts or advice would you leave, leave us with as we go throughout
3: the, uh, the rest of this hurricane season? Very quickly, we're not done. And we're not done until November 30th. That's the technical end of the hurricane season. So we've had named storms in December, in January, in April, way apart. And, and, and as, as warm as the North Atlantic is, where we've had a couple of storms form this year, that may happen again this year. We'll have to watch that carefully. But my thought is, we're lucky enough to be in paradise, but you must be prepared. I don't want to be the guy that goes, oh, I'm going to cry wolf, I'm going to cry wolf. But I am going to continually remind you to make sure you're prepared with your life, with your family, with your business, in case any tropical storms come our way.
0: John, as always, that's great advice. and. Good luck at St. Simon's this weekend. We appreciate you. And I want to let our our listeners know just how helpful you were with us last week, and then not only last week, but in the other storms before. So thank you for that. And if there are any businesses that are listening that would like for uh, uh, to consult with John on on storms and things, please reach out to him. And I know he'd be glad to uh, to work with you. So John, we'll thank
3: forward.
0: you. Keep up the Thanks good the work. Doctor. And we really appreciate you. All right, that was John Weatherby, and we're uh, uh, talking all things about storms. As we get ready to close today, I wanna to just remind everyone that if you're not already following us on social media, please do so. That's a great way to uh, keep up with the latest community news and events. And then uh, also wanna remind people that uh, are the CJ Cup, gonna be happening at Congaree October 20th through the 23rd. If you haven't gotten your tickets for that, you might wanna think about doing so. And then we're in fall, spring's just around the corner, the RBC Heritage presented by Boeing. Uh, one wanted to mention that ticket sales uh, are going well there, and it was a sellout last year, and so you want to jump in, get your tickets early at, for the RBC Heritage. As we wrap up today, a couple more shout outs I want to give Haley Martin and our, our team. It's her birthday, so Haley, happy birthday to you, and thanks for all you do. And then we had some other exciting news here at the Chamber not too long ago. Our own Lily Strickland got engaged. And uh, so she and Charlie Wilmot will be getting married sooner than later. So congratulations to them. Thank you all for listening to us today. Hope it was helpful. And we look forward to being back with you again soon. Thanks again. Have a great fall day.
1: Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Chamber Channel's Power Hour. We encourage you to tune in
0: for future episodes. Never miss one by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify,
3: or Google Podcasts.